Welcome to MPOD, a podcast on peace, security, and justice, produced by students and staff at the Senator George Mitchell Institute for Global Peace, Security, and Justice at Queen's University, Belfast. This is a special episode that we're pleased to share with Senator George Mitchell, who is here in Belfast visiting Queen's earlier this week. We first have a short interview with Senator Mitchell about his opinions on gun violence. And this is a great preview into our next um, regular episode coming up uh, next week on women in the gun violence movement in the U.S. Senator Mitchell also stayed for over an hour to speak with our students about all kinds of different topics and responding to their questions on issues of importance to young people today. Uh, to introduce George Mitchell and our interview with him, I'd like to introduce our master's student, Elizabeth Cherish. Thank you so much, Julie. Senator Mitchell was President Bill Clinton's appointee to chair the negotiations for the agreement. He was also President Barack Obama's special envoy to the Middle East. His books include Making Peace, About the Agreement Negotiations, The Negotiator, A Memoir, and A Path to Peace, A Brief History of Israeli-Palestinian Negotiations and A Way Forward in the Middle East. We are so grateful for the opportunity to speak with Senator Mitchell. So I'm just going to ask you one question because we don't have too much time. Okay. Um, but a lot of the work that you did was addressing the political and the more publicized violence um, here in Northern Ireland. Is there a way to incorporate conversations of intimate partner violence or gender-based violence into the conversations you're having more broadly about political violence in talks such as the Peace Talks for Northern Ireland? Well, my experience on personal violence uh, is more grounded uh, in my work I did in the Senate. Mm -hmm. Uh, When I was there, uh, we were actively involved in uh, gun control legislation. We enacted an assault weapons ban uh, that had a 10-year life and unfortunately was not renewed when the composition of the Congress changed. And we also enacted the uh, Brady Bill, which basically called for the creation of a national registry so that background checks could be conducted. And I uh, think we should now go further, hopefully, and uh, improve the background check process and make it universal to remove the exemption for gun shows and others that make it possible for guns to be transferred. I, I, I did not, I confess, think of the uh, political violence in Northern Ireland in the context of the U.S. situation, where it is, as you know, a much different situation, although in its own way uh, is deadly for the numbers are very large uh, of Americans over uh, recent years in that respect. As you also know, that uh, uh, in the UK and in other uh, Western democratic societies, uh, there is much more stringent gun control legislation. Uh, It is imperfect, as are all human efforts and all legislative efforts, but they do uh, result in a substantially lower rate of personal violence uh, than occurs in the United States. But as we saw in Northern Ireland, uh, there was widespread political violence and 
uh, access to weapons Ill, uh, achieved illegally from external sources. That's great. Thank you so much, Senator. Very warm welcome to Senator Mitchell. And I'm not going to spend a long time introducing you because everybody here is well briefed on your career and achievements and accomplishments and, and your well, important role. Like <laughs> 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 your important role here in Northern Ireland and, yeah. and, and service to Queen's University and then as an envoy to the Middle East as well and decades of work in terms of environmental and legislation and activism also. So students are well aware and briefed on that. So, um, like I said, I'm not going to give you a long introduction. I'm okay. going to um, let the students ask their questions, and okay. um, we'll just take it from there. Okay. You know what I'd like to do, though? I'd like to swap seats with you, because I don't want to sit oh, this in the sun. Yeah, that's okay. Sit right here. I'm going to take my jacket off. You all look comfortable, so I'm going to Let me just say thank you very much. Yes. Thank all of you for being here. Thank you for your participation in the Institute's study and work. And uh, having served uh, many years in the Senate, which has the rule of unlimited debate, I'm used to listening to eight-hour speeches and giving some myself. So I had to dis discipline myself when I come here because I don't give a speech. Uh, although I did acquire, in my years in the Senate, the dubious ability to be able to speak at indefinite length on any subject. <laughs> but I think it's more interesting for you and for me if we go right to the questions. So, fire away. Thank you all for being here. Thank you, David. Yeah. Uh, thank you so much for being here. I've got to ask you all to speak up clearly. Maybe stand up when you ask your question so I can, I can hear you. Well, thank you so much for being here. My name is David Mills, and uh, my question is it's kind of a, bit, a longer one, but it's uh, how did you, or what, was, what elements were present um, that allowed you to know that the conflict in Northern Ireland was ripe for mediation, and what, was the, what were the biggest challenges that you faced um, as a mediator during the mediation process? And the last part of that is um, what was the most surprising thing you encountered uh, in, the pro in the process of reaching mm -hmm. peace agreement? I think it will take a long speech to answer <laughs> uh, three questions disguised as one. Um, when I began, uh, there was no indication that the process might succeed. Uh, there had been a history of failed efforts The most immediate predecessor occurred in the early 1990s, and the British and Irish governments then spent several years trying to get a new process going. And that's when I, that, that's when the, talk, the talks began in June of 1996, and that's when I uh, began my role as chairman of those talks. I had been in Northern Ireland for about a year and a half before that serving as President Clinton's representative here. And I had been engaged in a number of tasks which suggested that it would be very difficult, and, but it was worth doing because the conflict had gone on for a long time at great cost of lives, property, and mostly creating an atmosphere of hostility. So, 
there wasn't any real uh, uh, sign or suggestion that this process would be any success, any more successful than the failed efforts of the past. That that was really the situation. And for about 18 months, that proved to be the case. There was very little progress, a great deal of uh, recrimination effective. It's a good indication of the difficulty in that while there were 10 political parties from Northern Ireland, two governments, Ireland and the United Kingdom, and the chairman, myself, and I had two colleagues, the former Prime Minister of Finland and the former Canadian General Chief of Staff. Uh, I was here for five years, during which I chaired three separate but related discussions, the main one being the negotiations. And not once ever, in all of that time, was I able to get all 13 in the same room at the same time. We never had a single meeting that everybody attended. Typically, someone had walked out, someone had been expelled temporarily, someone wouldn't come to a meeting. Uh, so sometimes we had eight, sometimes we had six, sometimes we had 11. We never had everybody there. Even when we succeeded, two parties had walked out before we got to the end of the process. So it was very difficult. The rest of it, it uh, on the positive side, uh, in most democratic societies these days, political leaders are ridiculed and reviled and criticized, and surely much of it is well-deserved. But there are occasions in human history when men and women rise to the occasion, and that was the case in 1998. And it really was the political leaders of Northern Ireland, themselves much criticized and reviled, who had been, all of them had spent their lives in conflict. Some of them had been convicted of brutal crimes, attempted murder, bombing, attempted assassination. Some had themselves been victims of shootings, had been actually shot. Many of them had been shot at. And uh, there was extreme hostility at the outset really extreme hostility. People storming out, arguing in very strong, personal and selfish terms. But gradually they came to realize that they had a chance to change the course of history for their country. And they did it, and, and it's they who deserve credit, the political leaders of Northern Ireland. Okay, Jan. My question follows on from David's. Yeah, my question follows on from David's. Right. Um, but recognizing what a huge achievement um, the agreement was, I just wondered now, looking back um, on the situation in Northern Ireland, whether there is anything you reflect on that could have been done differently to create a more positive peace here in Northern Ireland yeah. now. Yeah. 
the, the Good Friday Agreement was a political compromise, imperfect. Uh, every human being, every human institution, every human effort is imperfect. Just think of it. Every one of us has made so many mistakes and errors in judgment in our lives. We have said the wrong thing often, done the wrong thing often, regretted it, promised to do better, and then the next day we failed again. When I published a memoir a couple of years ago, a reporter asked me when I was doing a book tour, could I list the 10 biggest mistakes I ever made? I said, honestly, I can't reduce it to 10. I made some. <laughs> he said, are you going to write a book about that? I said, no, I'm going to let someone else do that. <laughs> I can't tell you how many mis terrible mistakes I've made in the, all the various jobs I've had. So, and, and also in human affairs, in life, life has changed. Every one of you, your life changes every day. Uh, societies change. No political agreement is immutable, never to be changed. Probably the, the most enduring document is the American Constitution, and that's been amended a couple dozen times. It's very hard to amend, but it's been amended, and it will probably be amended in the future dozens of times as circumstances change. And, and the Good Friday Agreement, in its own words, did not purport to solve all of the problems. We created commissions in the report to deal with problems that we couldn't resolve, on policing and justice, and just too, too difficult, too complicated. So yeah, you have to view it as that. And, uh, but it did achieve what was at the time, and I think what remains, the most important step was an ending of political violence, or at least a steep reduction, which hung over the society like a heavy, unyielding fog and it created tremendous fear and anxiety. This is so much a different place than it was 20 years ago. So it was an historic achievement, which is what I described it as at the time. But I also said on the same day that I announced it, that by itself it didn't guarantee peace or political stability or reconciliation. It was it created the possibility of those being accomplished down the line. So I think it has to be viewed in that way, not as any final statement of issues or final resolution. Someone once wrote, I don't know who it was, almost every pearl of wisdom Churchill was supposed to have said, uh, but I don't know whether he said this, that in human affairs, the solution to every problem contains within itself the seeds of a new problem. And you could argue that about the Good Friday Agreement. And I think with justification. Uh, Kendall? Yes, I wonder the thought, um, some of Speak up, Kendall. <laughs> Hi, um, some have questioned communities that were the brunt of conflict violence continue to remain at the bottom in terms of um, economic deprivation. Right. Do you think that as a negotiator, there's an obligation to advocate for economic justice for all as opposed to economic growth for some? Yeah. 
Well, there's another saying, again, I don't know if Churchill said it, but in, in human affairs, you cannot let the perfect be the enemy of the good. You cannot say, I'm not going to solve problems one, two, and three, unless I can simultaneously solve problems five, six, and seven. Because you'll never get anything done there. Uh, the prerequisite to a decent life for most people, the foundation upon which jobs, economic growth, and prosperity can be based, must be the absence of ongoing violence which tends to dwarf all other issues, makes life untenable for people because of the fear and anxiety. So the Good Friday Agreement was brilliantly successful in achieving that, but it was never intended to be conceived of as a way to resolve every social problem in it was a gateway that would enable other problems to resolve, to be resolved, as a consequence of the absence of political violence. But the question you raised is, is really integrally related to the answer that I've given. I was involved in the Balkans, the conflict there before I came here, and after I left, I was involved in the Middle East. And there are surface similarities in many of these conflicts, religious differences, territorial disputes, national identity. But underlying all of them, there is an economic factor. Where People don't have hope where they don't have opportunity, where men and women lack self-esteem, uh, you have the ingredients for political violence. And so, yes, it's one of the absences of success in this society, the absences of success in virtually every society on earth today, including the United States, where you and I are from is the inequality uh, that exists, which not just exists, but which is increasing. And how can you deal with that? But I, I can tell you, we came this close to not getting the agreement. And if we had, if we had said, we, we're not gonna agree to this until we can solve X, Y, Z also, there would have been no agreement, you'd still have the, have the political violence. But, but the issue you raised is central to not just the resolving of existing conflicts, but the prevention of future conflicts. And, and no one is immune from it. Uh, I know that the Americans here will be familiar with it, but many of the others aren't. In the late 1920s and early 1930s, as the Depression began to set in, in the United States and worldwide, a group of American veterans of the First World War, mostly men who had fought in behalf of the country and who were now destitute, gathered in a demonstration in our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. And the police and military broke up, violently broke up the demonstration. 
and you had a very violent scene right in the heart of our nation's capital. Men who would risk their lives for their country now have completed that suit of hats to work and they were protesting and they were in a very violent scene. It can happen anywhere. And, and not enough attention is paid, I think, to the inequality. And I, I, I think it is a prime moving factor in the upheavals that are occurring politically that have occurred in the United States and manifests itself here in Brexit and riots in France and in other countries of how do you move societies forward in a way that harnesses the tremendous energy and productivity that comes from a free market and free people without creating a situation of economic inequality so severe that it tends to undermine the very freedoms that you, you need to move forward in a society. Now, there's nothing new about that. The Industrial Revolution began in what is now the United Kingdom 250 years ago. And as the threat of high unemployment, because machines began to replace men in the production of goods, that threat created widespread unease. There was violence, there was upheaval, there was exploitation. But generally, there was also, over the course of the next century, a dramatic increase in the standard of living across the whole society. But the anxiety and fear that comes from transitions, transitional periods, in which people don't have opportunity, in which they tend to interpret change as alien to them and threatening to them, and especially when it threatens their identities, uh, it creates the kind of inequality and uh, upheaval and real potential for violence that you see today. I think it's the central issue facing most, I, I won't go beyond Western society, but I think it does affect people everywhere. Uh, and uh, we, we haven't figured out how to deal with it. Almost everybody here is a beneficiary of the technological and trade revolution through which we are now passing. But those of you from the states know that there are plenty of places you can go in America, particularly in rural America, where it declined. And you see it in the UK. The pro-Brexit vote in the UK was mostly in the older cities, the smaller cities, the older people. London was young and vibrant and successful. The vote was overwhelmingly to remain. Uh, and it manifests itself in different ways. It's now, you can see it in Italy and in other places. And when people are fearful, when their identity is threatened, when they don't have opportunity, most of all, when they lack self-esteem, they're susceptible to an appeal in this way. Eliza, so Senator, in your experience, what are the main strengths and challenges of being a third party? Say it again, in my experience. What are the main strengths and challenges uh, of being a third party who's offering their peacekeeping expertise in a conflict situation, and especially when it involves uh, dialogue with those who are labeled terrorists? Yeah. I, I don't think there's any general rule. Uh, there are circumstances in which outside mediation can be helpful. That was the case in Northern Ireland. There are circumstances when 
doesn't work in the circumstances when it backfires. I think it's highly fact specific. Depends upon the culture, the history of the location in which the conflict is occurring, which mediation is suggested. Remember, mediation is a voluntary process. It's not like a court process or arbitration where you're bound by anything. Mediation, you can come and go as you want. You can participate if you want, leave when you want. Uh, so uh, I, I, I don't think it, it can be seen as an off-the-shelf remedy for anybody who has the ailment of conflict. It, it just depends upon the circumstances and the situation. The, I, the qualities, I think, are the main ones are uh, being able and willing to listen to others, particularly those with whom you disagree to have a high level of humility about one's own ability to control or influence events. To make certain that those involved in the conflict are essentially the owners of the process. On the very first day that the negotiations began here in Northern Ireland, I remember very clearly, June 10th, 1996, I said to the delegates that I did not come with an American peace plan. I said, there's no Clinton plan, there's no Mitchell plan. If we ever get an agreement, it will be your agreement. Because when it's over, I'm going home and you have to stay and live with the consequences. And nearly two years later, when we drafted an agreement and we distributed it to the political parties on the last, very last day, June 10th, 1998, I'm uh, sorry, uh, April 10th, 1998, I, I appended a covering note on it. And I said to them, this is your agreement. Every word in this document has been spoken or written by someone from Northern Ireland, which was the case. When I drafted I made sure that every word came from someone in Northern Ireland. And, and I think that's a very important part of it. The mediator is not the star of the show. The people involved in the negotiations who live there are the stars of the Elizabeth? So I'm Elizabeth. Nice to meet you. Thank you so much for coming today. Um, how can we bring more women into negotiations for peace at the political and governmental level? And what is the importance of having women in these decisions that have been historically led by men? Uh, the participation by women in the Northern Ireland peace process was significant and uh, did have a positive influence on the outcome. It was the product of a broader effort uh, to widen the scope of participation that was not exclusively directed to women. It's complicated. This will take a minute to explain it, but it's worth explaining because it shows how if you really try hard, you can figure out a way to uh, make your objective. Welcome. I'm the one who's supposed to make it dramatically. I had no problem. There were, there were then, there still are, five major political parties in Northern Ireland. Two nationalists, two unionists, and the Alliance Party, which is the only one that seeks to draw from both sides, but which has never achieved 10% in the polls. 
On the nationalist side, one of the parties, Sinn Féin, was affiliated with a paramilitary organization, the IRA. On the unionist side, the two major parties, the DUP and the UUP, had no formal affiliation with any paramilitary, but there were smaller groups that were affiliated with paramilitary. The British and Irish governments had concluded logically and wisely that one of the reasons the previous negotiations had all failed was that they <coughs> deliberately excluded the political parties who were affiliated with paramilitary. <coughs> they limited entry to the negotiations to what, what they call here constitutional parties, which simply means that they're political parties that don't have a paramilitary affiliation. And, and their review of the earlier process reached the logical conclusion that if a war is going on and you have a negotiation to end the war, you're not likely to succeed if you exclude the people who are fighting the war. That sounds so obvious, and it is obvious, but it wasn't at the time. So what we, my, me and my colleagues tried to do was figure out a way to get the paramilitary, the parties affiliated with paramilitaries in, in a way that would not drive the constitutional parties out. That was the challenge that we faced. And so we came up with what have become known as the Mitchell Principles in which any party entering had to make a commitment to nonviolence, a public commitment to nonviolence. Now, further complicating it, the unionists wanted an election, but they had to be elected to what was called a forum from which the peace delegates would be drawn. The nationalists were opposed to any election, arguing that elections lead to more extreme rhetoric, rouse hostile feelings, and then makes it tougher. Well, we decided on an election. So we had a problem. If we had an election with just the normal five parties, Sinn Féin would get in, affiliated with the IRA, but on the unionist side, the loyalist parties, affiliated with paramilitaries, wouldn't be represented. So we conceived of this idea. There are five parties. Supposing we say that the ten parties who get the top 10 parties in the voting would gain entry to the process. Well, that, of course, created the possibility that the loyalist parties, who recorded 1, 2, 3%, could get in. That also led to the creation of a couple of new parties, one of which was the Northern Ireland Women's Coalition. So because we said 10 parties, but there were five parties that entered. The main five parties get in, you know, they had 16% of the vote, 23% of the vote, 9% of the vote. The women got 1.1% of the vote, and the loyalists got 0.8% of the vote, but they get in because the threshold was set at 10. And the women played what they say, St. Boxing got punched way above their weight. They got a very tiny vote to get in, 
But once you're in, you're a delegate. You've got the same right to speak as someone who got 25% of the vote. And same voting as, as, as an independent party at the top. Same voting rights. And they, they, they played a tremendous role. And it was thanks really to, we sat for hours with the uh, public servants, not, not the political ministers, but the, the government civil servants from the UK and Ireland, and, and I and my two colleagues, and we tried to figure out how can we come up with a way to get these loyalist parties in. We needed them to make, give the talk credibility. Uh, and we hit on this idea, and the women hit on it, and two, two names you should remember were real heroes in the process were the two women who chaired the Northern Ireland uh, women's group. Monica McWilliams was the nationalist representative, a distinguished uh, professor and lecturer at LC University. And the union's woman was a housewife named Pearl Sagan. You haven't heard her name. S-A-G-E-R. Terrific, terrific person. Both of them. And, and they played an outsized role in the process that really helped us bring it to a conclusion. So they deserve to be more than footnotes in history because they were truly historical figures in the process. Hi, Alice. Hi. Hi. Um, how much importance do personalities hold for the success? Yes, wait, oh, sorry. How much importance do personalities hold for the success of a peace process? Is the process reliant on key figures sustainable? If these figures cannot be guaranteed to remain yeah, the right. Start over again. I'm <laughs> one of the, when you get to my age, first thing you lose is your memory, then your hearing. Because <laughs> my hearing and not my memory. Uh, how much importance do personalities hold for the success of a peace process? Is the process reliant on key figures sustainable if these figures can't be guaranteed to remain part of the political process going yeah. forward? Yeah. Well, the peace negotiations are an ongoing part of political life. You, you take the politics as you find them when the process starts. Uh, the leaders of the parties had been elected before, during, and after. Uh, and uh, their individual styles, uh, histories, all differ and one of the challenges of sharing that I had was to figure out how to deal with each of them in a different way. It, uh, I now, I have three children, and so I had some practice. <laughs> children are different. You know, you don't treat your kids, some <coughs> children, you don't treat your kids exactly the same way because they're not the same. Uh, and. Uh, dealing with the political leaders was uh, very difficult at times, but I had good practice in the Senate. <laughs> I was a Senate Majority Leader, and each of my 99 colleagues in the Senate felt that they should be at least Majority Leader and probably President. <laughs> and, and so dealing with them was not easy. You learn to, uh, how to uh, handle big egos and how to uh, address concerns in a realistic way, and it's Sort of like human managing human affairs ordinarily, like you with your colleagues and you with your family and you with your friends, uh, you, you, you adapt to different styles. 
the, it's not easy, it's, but it's a big, big part of it. Uh, I had had the advantage uh, of having served as Senate Majority Leader for several years. And before that, I've been a federal judge in the United States. And so I presided over legal disputes. And so you, you sort of get a little bit of training in how to conduct a process that's open and fair. Everybody gets a chance to be heard. Uh, and, and that was of enormous help to me uh, in the process. But, but, but a central part of any such effort, a central part of almost all human efforts is human relationships and how you figure out how to deal with people and to get the best of the out of them. Uh, Laura? Hi. Um, so my question is, uh, why do you think that you're able to... No, speak up. Yes. <laughs> um, come, come closer, yeah. <laughs> uh, why do you think that you were able to succeed with the negotiations that led to the Good Friday Agreement but didn't succeed with the negotiations in the Middle East? Yeah. The Middle East is more complicated, if anything. Uh, when I first went there, the President of Israel organized, he has an annual big dinner, and uh, invited me to be the featured speaker at it. And uh, I spoke, and then the question and answer period, I was asked about Northern Ireland. And in response, I, I noted, just in passing, that the peace agreement in Northern Ireland was reached just about 800 years after the British domination of Ireland began. And when I finished, I walked off the stage, and it is common that these events, you know, group of people gather around, they want to take pictures, some people want to give you a hard time, some people want to ask you questions, and a very elderly Israeli gentleman with a cane hearing aids walked up and he said in a loud voice, he said, did you say 800 years? And I said, yes, 800 years. And he repeated it another 800 years. And then he said in kind of a dismissive way, he said, no wonder you settled it. It's such a recent argument. <laughs> <laughs> well, they go back thousands of years arguing who was there first. And uh, it's much more complicated, uh, particularly in relation to external affairs. If you just look at a map, there you see Ireland and Scotland and England, sort of islands off in the northwestern corner of Europe. You go to the Middle East, and uh, it's a densely packed, very tiny place. At one point, Israel is nine miles wide. And right over here is Syria, Right over there is Egypt, and right over there is Iraq, and the region is circular. Uh, Islam has been riven by internal conflict since the death of the Prophet Muhammad. Uh, there was a ferocious war fought over several decades, facing between two groups. One was the, the family members, the, those who had, they claimed had they had the blood of the prophet in them, and those who were the bureaucracy that he had built up to, to manage the large caliphate. It, it actually overlapped, but they two distinct groups. And finally, the bureaucracy won, and they became the Sunni. And the relatives lost, and they became the Shia. And for 
1400 years they've been engaged in conflict which periodically wanes and then periodically erupts and we're now in a period of intense tremendously intense eruption the very same technology that means every one of you has two cell phones and you check your email every six six minutes well al-qaeda has cell phones and all of these groups have cell phones and the technology has enabled uh, conflict and indeed spark conflict in some cases so that's going on you have internal battles uh, of course religious but territorial family in 1947 late November of 1947, the United Nations proposed the participation, that the, the partition of Palestine, an Israeli state, Palestinian state, Jerusalem would be an international city administered by an independent entity. After much internal debate, Israel accepted. The Arabs rejected it. There were only then 600,000 Jews in the region and the, ten Arab, the, the six Arab nations, millions, tens of millions of people thought they could easily defeat the Israelis. There was an arms embargo in effect. There were no American arms went to the region. The Israelis got their arms from, illegally from the uh, old Soviet munitions factory called Skoda in Czechoslovakia. And Ben-Gurion was the prime minister of Israel feisty, great national leader. And he had a press conference and he was exuding confidence. Meanwhile, people of Israel were terrified that they were about to be annihilated by the six Arab countries invading. And he said, uh, well, he said, well, I'm very confident. We're gonna win. And a reporter said, how can you be so confident? He said, well, I have a secret weapon. And a reporter said, what's the secret weapon? He said, the Arabs. They fought among themselves more than they fought against the Israelis. They lied to each other about how many troops they were committing, when they were going to attack, and so Israel essentially defeated six Arab countries one at a time. And that persists to this day. You can see the internal Arab disputes, not just between Sunni and Shia, although that's a big part of it, but between Sunni. Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates, and Bahrain have cut off relations with Qatar. The Qatar royal family originated in Saudi Arabia. And, and they're, they're going to the extreme. Well, picture geography. There's the Arabian Peninsula, and, and Qatar is a small peninsula off to the side. The Saudis have announced that they're going to spend billions of dollars creating a channel to, to make Qatar from a peninsula into an island. And these are, and the, the Qataris originated in Saudi Arabia, they've been hostile for 350 years. And, and so the whole region is in turmoil. We all hope for more out of the Arab Spring and there have been Tunisia's of democracy in, in birth. Morocco has been called the democracy within monarchy. So there's been some progress, but overall it's been disappointing. And 
the, the region is very turbulent. So it's a mistake to think of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict in isolation. You could think of Northern Ireland in isolation from Europe, but you can't think of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict in isolation. It's, it, it, it's affected by, it in turn affects conflict in, the, in an extremely turbulent region. Very, very, you talk about economic inequality, the earlier question, extremes of uh, economic inequality, many corrupt governments driven uh, by corruption, exploding populations. The history tells us quite clearly that the single most important factor in population growth is the status of women. Where women are independent and empowered, population rates tend to stabilize. Where they are not, population broadens. And so in the 30 years between now and 2050, population in Africa will double. Right now, one out of five human beings on Earth is Muslim, about a billion five or six out of seven and a half billion. In 2060, when the world's population reaches 10 billion, one out of three will be Muslim, three and one half billion. To put that into perspective, that was the total population of the world as recently as 1970. And all of these pressures will continue to rise. The, the dramatic and spectacular movement of people across national boundaries, people seeking to flee violence and terror and poverty and famine to get, to get a better life. There's no bigger problem. Well, everybody here knows in Europe, you have the terrific issue of migration from Africa and the Middle East and the United States across the southern border. That's going to accelerate dramatically in your lifetime. You won't, your societies won't face a more serious problem. That's, isn't that what Brexit is supposed to be about? Control of national borders, hostility to immigrants coming in. So it's a, it's a tough, tough region. And uh, uh, unfortunately, I think the policies that are being pursued now are unlikely to produce what should happen, which is two-state solution with an independent, sovereign, non-militarized Palestinian state living side by side in peace with Israel. I think it eventually will happen because it's so much in the self-interest of both societies. And uh, ultimately, I think in individual advanced societies, self-interest prevails. But right now, it doesn't look very good. Uh, what do you believe should be the United States' legacy within peacebuilding, and do you think that peacebuilding efforts should be pursued more intensely by the U.S. State Department in the future? Yeah. It, it, it's a very important question, and with very valid arguments on all sides. Uh, each of the Americans here remember somewhere in grammar school you either recited or listened to someone recite George Washington's farewell address to his countrymen, the founding father of our country, our first president. And you could sum up his address in a couple of sentences. Don't get mixed up with those Europeans. They're always fighting wars, and we don't want to get into wars. Let's, let's 
have democracy here unless serve as an example. Abraham Lincoln, arguably our greatest president, came along 80 years later and said essentially the same thing. Let's lead by example, but let's not get mixed up with the Europeans. And as, the, as we know, uh, there remains strong resistance in our country to getting involved in wars, even as we now are in our 14th year of war in Afghanistan and our 12th year of war in Iraq or whatever the numbers are. So there, there is a strong strain of uninvolvement. And ironically, it often comes from the most recent migrants from elsewhere. They've been through it, and they come to our country to get something, and they don't want to go back to what they were involved in before. But as we learned, uh, no other lesson from 9-11 is that when you are the dominant world power, uh, you have to deal with problems because the problems will come to you anyway. And so uh, my own view is that we should be much more actively involved in peacemaking and peace building, but less military and more non-military means. The United States played a crucial role in the peace process in Northern Ireland through the involvement of President Clinton. Not one bullet, not one bomb, very little money, but mostly strong leadership and an active role when and where appropriate. And, and you can't replicate the circumstances, of course, but that's the kind of uh, approach I think we should take in with, with the, the uh, willingness to use force when necessary and appropriate. It, it, it's hard to define in advance, but I, I have seen numerous commentaries and articles harshly criticizing the United States for not militarily intervening in Syria for not militarily intervening in Sudan, for not militarily intervening in Nigeria uh, to, to combat the Boko Haram and other terrorist groups. And you can argue that there's, we could easily be sending armies all around the world, but, but that has a counterproductive effect as well. Uh, and so uh, when and where uh, American influence is deployed, whether defined in military or non-military terms, is probably the biggest challenge, at least in foreign affairs, that a president faces. And you can't, it's impossible to define precisely in advance, because you don't know what's going to happen where. But, but I think we should be much more active, primarily in non-military ways around the world, to encourage peace and uh, democracy where appropriate. Um, How do you get two questions? <laughs> Some, someone was sick, so oh, this sick. is their yeah, the stand-in mark. <laughs> the surrogate, okay. Yeah, the surrogate. 
Um, so in the current climate where politics in the states and elsewhere seem more divisive. Whoa, whoa, slow down. Sorry. <laughs> um, I tend to talk quickly. Um, in the current climate where politics in the states and elsewhere seem more divisive than ever, what lessons did you learn from dealing with politicians in Northern Ireland that could be applied back to, in the states to foster a greater sense of civility and commonality in American politics? Well, <laughs> if, anybody, if anybody has sat through the negotiation with me and listened to these guys from Northern Ireland yell and swear at each other, uh, they wouldn't have characterized it the way <laughs> in the question. Uh, uh, in, in, in our own country, the United States, politics has always been rough and tumble. Uh, one historian described it as lengthy periods of contention interrupted by short bursts of cooperation. <laughs> uh, just think of this. Uh, the election for president of 1800 was between two men who are now icons of American history. John Adams was the incumbent. Thomas Jefferson was the challenger. And what was said about them back and forth far more harsh than anything said now. The difference, of course, is those were written. Very few people read them. You didn't have electronic media. You didn't have cable television news. You didn't have social media. Now you have all of these outlets. There is far more information existing in the world today with far less accuracy that is far greater uncertainty about the truth of what it is you read or hear or see. And uh, the massive amounts of money that pour into the American political process, largely unregulated because of a series of extremely unwise Supreme Court decisions. Uh, and under unreported, there is not a person in the world who can tell you how many billions of dollars are being put into American election campaigns illegally by non-Americans to an extraordinary degree. At the same time, there's been a steep reduction, virtual elimination of transparency. So you don't know who's given what to whom. One of the ironies is that the Supreme Court <coughs> and those who defend this decision say, well, Sunlight is the great disinfectant. If it's all reported, if the public knows who gives what to whom, that's all you need. You don't need any limitations, either on contributions to campaigns or expenditures by campaigns. But in fact, transparency has disappeared. There isn't any enforceable mechanism by which we know who's giving what to whom. And there's intricate lawyers and accountants get together and figure out these intricate ways to conceal these billions of dollars, it's, it, it's a scandal. It's, it's an incredible scandal. And it's adversely affecting our democratic process, combined with the, the massive attempt at voter suppression to prevent people of color, particularly African-Americans, from voting, uh, to disqualify millions of people, reduce the number of uh, voting places, reduce the hours that they're open, make it tough uh, for people or poor to vote. It's, it, it's truly scandalous. And uh, I, I think it, it's a threat to our democracy. And, and you can see it in some of the results. And I hope that uh, 
there'll be a welling up of uh, national outrage at it, but it hasn't shown up so far. Uh, my question is twofold. Um, first, what are your thoughts on the proposed Green New Deal, um, and that's domestically, and then you strike for climate internationally, um, especially given your extensive work and legislation yeah. on environmentalism. And then secondly, how have you seen environmentalism in civil society as well as in politics change since your work and yeah. since you wrote well, I'll take the second one first. Uh, it has changed dramatically and for the worse. When I was in the Senate, and I was deeply involved in environmental legislation, we had bipartisan efforts. When, when I was a principal author of the Clean Air Bill that passed in 1990, and we had four senators who led the effort. Two of us were Democrats and two were Republicans. The chairman of our committee was a Republican senator from Vermont, Robert Sanders, quiet, spoken man with a spine of steel. He was a firm advocate. Now, the Republican Party has completely turned the other way. The chairman of the Senate Environment Committee, one of the highest environmental officials in our country, says that climate change is a hoax. The president says, Climate change is a hoax perpetrated by China to harm the American economy. It's obviously absurd, obviously untrue. They can't possibly believe it themselves. Yet they say it repeatedly in public. And the president withdraws the United States from the Paris Climate Accord. Nearly 200 countries in the world, and only one is not a party to the Paris Accords and that's the United States. I mean, it's shocking to even say it, but, but to have it be a reality, I think it's incredible. And so, and, and ironically, Republicans, the men, they were largely men, who created the environmental movement a century ago were almost all Republicans. They, they, they were the party of environmentalism at its outset. And gradually they've turned away from it and now they, Adopt this absurd position that it's a hoax, that it doesn't exist, it's made up by some cabal of scientists somewhere who are trying to harm the American economy. Uh, it's very, very deeply discouraged. Very deeply discouraged. Uh, give me the first part. The Green New Deal and you strike yeah. for climate, so those sorts of. Yeah. It's, it's always good to have aspirational statements, but I think the, uh, uh, they, they have to, they can go beyond the current vision, but they can't go so far beyond the current vision that they don't seem realistic to people. You understand the point I'm making? And I think, unfortunately, on the Green New Deal, particularly the rollout of it, uh, Included some statements that were later withdrawn that gave it the appearance of being completely unrealistic and unattainable. And, and so I think it's actually, it's had some benefits, but it's had more of a negative effect because it enables the people who say climate change is a hoax to say that, well, this is pie in the sky and this can't, and it's true, it can't possibly happen. 
you can't achieve in 10 years what the agreement or what the new deal says. Better off to make aspirations. Asp if you're going to make aspirational statements, don't put dates on them <laughs> because it just it just strikes people as ridiculous, and it innate gives ammunition to the opposition. But uh, but I think it's important to have to have the point made that environmental protection is not for the benefit of the trees or the forests, although they will benefit, or the animals. It's for human benefit, for protecting human life. The turnaround in getting clean air legislation enacted was when we were able to get and publish evidence that it affected the health of the American people, that it wasn't an abstract Envir quote, environmental issue, it was a public health issue. And that really is the case with climate change. It threatens human life. And certainly the existence of humans where and as we know it. And, and I, I, so I think it's important to have be grounded in science and to stay, stay with science. I, I, my own belief is that you can go throughout human history. You know, there once was a time when a majority of people on Earth believed the Earth was flat. There was a time when the majority of people believed that uh, the sun orbited around the earth. And there was resistance uh, to, to reality. We still have it. You know, a, a third of Americans uh, uh, don't believe in evolution. In the last Republican nomination contest, when Dr. Ben Carson said that human beings were placed on earth in their current form by God, 2,000 years ago, he went up on the polls. It's a sad commentary, uh, but in the end, science prevails because it's reality. And there are always periods of transition when difficult notions aren't accepted by some. We now have this horrific problem in the United States of a movement of people against vaccines. So we're seeing a, a, a Assumption of measles and chickenpox and other diseases. Uh, but in the end, uh, it, it may take time, it may take generations, it may take decades, but scientific reality is reality, and it will ultimately be accepted, and people will look upon this as, as a, a quirk of history, an aberration by a few people. Thanks so much for that. Um, just a quick comment in terms of Palestinian and Israeli history. Of course, there's alternative versions yeah. presented by Israeli historians such as Elon Pape that's written about the ethnic cleansing of Palestine, right. Simcha Flatten about Israel's rejection of peace deals, Benny Morris about the intention of transfer of Palestinians long before the Israeli state actually reached fruition and their intentional rejections of a last hour American peace deal as has happened till now, because it would destroy the exclusivity of a Jewish state, which entails the transfer of the Christian and the Muslim and secular Palestinians. So I just had to comment on that. Um, sure. Yeah, because there's you know different versions and and also in terms well, of no, Jew, I, I, yeah. I don't dispute both sides have made a lot of mistakes. Sure, sure, and then of course now being more complicated with the unilateral actions with the U.S. Saudi Arabia. Israeli alliance, and of course we know Saudi Arabia's treatment of women and, and all of that. So that has also impacted the region and the growth of these different types of movements, etc. But in any case, 
Thank you for that. And uh, my question deals with East Jerusalem and taking into consideration Israel and Trump's unilateral actions that are actually violations of international law in the city and any criminalization of criticism of um, Israel, such as the boycott, divestment, sanctions movement, etc. What do you think might be the potential for progressive Palestinian Israeli civil society and global civil society to work towards the survival and actual coexistence of Palestinians within East Jerusalem? That's complicated. Yeah. <laughs> it's like a thesis. Well, I mean, uh, well, no, I, I, I think for the reasons I say, the prospects are not good, unfortunately. Uh, Ten years ago, uh, there was two-thirds support among both Israelis and Palestinians for a two-state solution. Uh, now it's half or less in both societies. You see a growing uh, demand. You, you obviously knowledge about the area, so you know you travel in Palestinian territory, you see a lot of sign about one state. And the Israelis, the, the settler movement and those Israelis who favor annexation also favor one state. Now they have different definitions of what they mean by one state. So I think the support for uh, a two-state solution and the possibility of normalization of life in East Jerusalem for the several hundred thousand Palestinians who live there, uh, the prospects are not good at this time. You know, uh, they voluntarily choose not to participate in Israeli electoral politics. Uh, as a consequence, uh, uh, their their very large numbers don't have an effect on municipal elections in Jerusalem. The annexation of what had been Palestinian territory, now described by the Israelis as East Jerusalem that occurred in two waves after the 1967 war has not been recognized internationally by the United States or any other country. But for most Israelis, they think of it as, quote, East Jerusalem. Uh, and one of the most contentious issues uh, is uh, whether a Palestinian state will come to exist and have its capital in East Jerusalem. I favor two states, and I favor a Palestinian capital in East Jerusalem, but East Jerusalem means two different things in each society. In the Palestinian definition, it's the original definition of East Jerusalem, which is a relatively small area close in. In the Israeli version, it's the larger expanded boundary, which was expanded, as I said, in 1969 and 1970. I publicly opposed uh, the president's decision to transfer the U.S. Embassy to Jerusalem because, in my judgment, uh, Jerusalem is the capital of Israel and will be. There's no doubt about that. The only question is whether Jerusalem will also be the capital of a Palestinian nation, a Palestinian state. And I think that the president's decision <coughs> makes that less likely. 
and effectively undermines our own policy, which for 50 years has been that the issues should be negotiated directly between the parties uh, and not prejudged. I gotta turn it off. <laughs> I think it's probably my wife probably wants to know what I'm doing. <laughs> no, but it's, it's another number. Uh, um, so uh, I don't, I don't, I don't give up. I think the uh, uh, the prospects are not good at this time, uh, and I think that on both sides uh, there is declining support for transition. Now, at the risk of offending you, you, you identified places where the Israelis refuse to negotiate. That I have to acknowledge, say that the Palestinians have refused to negotiate. I personally organized meetings between Abbas and Netanyahu. The last time they met, only four people in the room, two of them and Secretary Clinton. Uh, and President Abbas walked out of the talks, refusing to continue, because the Israelis wouldn't extend the moratorium on new construction in the, in the West Bank. And I told Abbas, I thought he was making a mistake. And I think he did make a mistake. He should have stayed in the talks. He had an administration that, and the president that were committed to the creation of a Palestinian state, non-militarized, but independent and sovereign. And I think that uh, there has been regression since then. So I think both sides have uh, unfortunately refused to negotiate and devoted most of their energies to trying to blame the other for not negotiating. very much. And as you know, Senator Mitchell is on a very tight schedule and we need to wind up by quarter past one to allow for the recording of the, the podcast. But this will be by far the shortest answer I've ever given if I comply with that. Uh, <laughs> so that, that one more, take one more question. Do you want to take one yeah, more? Yeah, one more. Okay, well the last one we have is comes from here again. It's another twofold. So. <laughs> oh, okay. no, no, threefold. You asked two before. This is yeah. Three. Yeah. Um, so during your time as Senate Majority Leader, you oversaw the creation of the WTO and NAFTA. And um, I'm wondering how you perceive the effectiveness of policies and IGOs like that um, today um, in attaining the goals that you had for those during the creation. Right. And then the second part is, has their appropriateness um, changed during the current debates in the West as well as the current administration's yeah. policies? In late December of 1942, the United States government sent secretly a delegation to London to meet with British officials. There had, in that year, been three major Allied victories, in Midway in the Pacific, in North Africa, and in Stalingrad. Those three marked the turning point of the Second World War, the, the, the period of maximum expansion of the Axis powers. The meetings between the American and British officials was to plan for the reconstruction necessary at the end of the war and for the initiation of policies to prevent another conflict. 
1939, Europe was devastated by three major land wars. In the Second World War alone, 63 million people died, in a world in which the population was a third of what it is now. The comparable figure now would be 100 maybe 200 million people died. Those officials believed that the protectionist reaction in the United States and elsewhere to the deep recession of the late 1920s accelerated the slide into worldwide depression, and that that depression made possible the growth and expansion of fascism and communism as reaction to it. They believed that the most effective way to prevent a resumption of that horrific conflict, World War III and another devastating war in Europe, was to establish a series of political, military, and trade alliances to lock countries into, primarily Germany, into relationships that would make less likely the conflict, because they knew that in prior history, trade wars frequently led to real wars. Since then, there has been an exponential increase in trade across national borders. The single largest beneficiary has been the United States. The president constantly says other nations take advantage of us. Alliances don't help us when history is directly to the contrary. And other nations have been. It is true that some jobs are lost when trade <coughs> agreements are entered into. But it is also true, although not widely understood, that the overwhelming majority of lost jobs in any industrial society are caused by innovation, the invention of new products, and are unrelated to any trade agreement. I grew up in a small town in Maine. In New England, a couple hundred years ago, we had a thriving industry where many men were employed in the manufacture of stagecoaches and other horse-drawn carriages. There's not a person, not one person in America who now works at making stagecoaches. Yet who could argue that the invention of the automobile was bad for America? It had nothing to do with any trade agreement. It was innovation, which is what you want in society. We have the same thing in our state. If any of you drive up the coast of Maine, you'll see several what they call captain's houses. They're now museums or often bed and breakfast. These were whaling captains who amassed small fortunes by building ships and hiring thousands of seamen to travel the oceans of the earth to catch whales. Because whale oil was the way they lit lamps back in those days. Any rational person argue that one day, a farmer in western Pennsylvania stumbled upon some black stuff, liquid coming out of the earth on his farm. And oil and natural gas became the fuel. And in historical terms, a blink of an eye, the whaling industry disappeared. And thousands of men were thrown out of work. Over and over again in history, we see progress comes at a cost. The difficulty is not that we should deny science and stop creating new products. It's that we have not helped in any way those who were 
disadvantaged or lost out as a result of it. The president is quite correct to express concern for American coal miners. He's completely wrong to tell these coal miners we're going to bring back the coal industry, we're going to open up new mines. The market is doing is changing that. And it's irreversible. There are now 50,000 people employed in America as coal miners. There are 350,000 people employed in making solar panels. We should double the number employed in solar panels and find a way to get the coal miners out of the mines and into the solar panel factories. That's the challenge. The denial of science, the denial of innovation and inventiveness is counterproductive for any society. We haven't been able to figure out a way to see that the enormous wealth created as a result of technological revolution, as a result of the increase in trade, finds its way through the whole society. It's increasingly concentrated in spectacular wealth for a relative handful of people. And change and loss of jobs, and most importantly, loss of self-esteem by millions and millions of people. That's what fueled Trump's election. That's what fueled Brexit in the UK. That's what's fueling what's happening in France. That's what fuels happening in Hungary and other places. And so the real challenge is not do we build walls, not do we deny science, not do we try to go backwards. How do you continue to harness the benefits of science and technological change but have them distributed through the whole society but you don't have a tiny group of really not have it all, have everything, and a large group of people who feel left out, excluded, their identity threatened. Uh, that's the biggest challenge for every democratic society, and no one has figured it out. And, and the men who made the stagecoaches, they and their families suffered grievously, but they were on their own. The men who manned the whaling ships, thousands of them, they were on their own. And the coal miners feel they're on their own. So they are susceptible to these appeals. One union leader said to me, when you're desperate, you'll try anything. And that sums it up, people's feelings. They, they know this is a fraud. They know this, they're going to kind of bring, reopen coal mines all over but they're desperate. So they're grasping for some semblance of self-esteem and some self semblance of self-respect. And we as a society have not met their needs. Thank you all very much. Great to see you. Good luck. Thank you for joining us for this special episode of MPOD. Our student producer for this episode was Elizabeth Cherish. Our sound technician and editor is Stephen Muon. Our original music is by Emily Cherish, and our logo was designed by Sarah McMahon. If you like this episode, please share it with your friends and rate us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. You can follow us on Twitter at QUBMPOD. MPOD is a production of the Senator George Mitchell Institute for Global Peace, Security, and Justice at Queen's University, Belfast. Thank you for listening.